You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, where cherry blossoms bloom, this is Blue and Goldcast. Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, this is Blue and Goldcast. I'm Santa Ono, the President and Vice Chancellor of UBC. On this season of the Blue and Goldcast, I'm speaking with the people who are leading some of the most innovative and creative work coming out of our campuses. In 2021, UBC's Morris and Helen Belkin Art Gallery partnered with the Stuart Blusson Quantum Matter Institute and the Department of Physics and Astronomy on a project meant to break down barriers. The result was Arts Ciencia, an ongoing UBC research excellence cluster. The cluster paired scientists and artists, challenging them to create work that stepped outside of their respective disciplines and bridged the academic gap between arts and science. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Daniel Korczynski and Josephine Lee. Daniel, a physicist, and Josephine, an artist, were paired together to create collaborative research that called on both their areas of expertise. Daniel, Josephine, welcome to Blue and Goldcast. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really curious to hear your story of your work. To start, how did you two get paired up on this project? And what was the process like uh, once you decided to go forward with this initiative? Well, so on the physics side, we got an email from the Quantum Matter Institute saying, okay, we're, we're going to have this wonderful art science project and we're looking for graduate students, postdocs, professors, anyone who's interested in participating. And I think about, uh, we had about 25 or 30 physicists show up and we were told, okay, you can give this, we're going to have this meeting with the artists and all the physicists will give like short, you know, four minute talks. The artists will give longer 20 minute talks. It was a bit like speed dating because at the end you had to sort of rank your, you know, your, your preferences and who you want to pair up with. And I have to say, I think I was the only theorist to survive, which I'm, I'm a little bit proud of. Josephine, what did you think about this tremendous turnout of physicists? Well, from the outset for artists, there was only four of us. And uh, we were, I think, just handpicked and invited for this collaboration. So sort of out of the blue, the curator uh, for the Belkin, Shelley Rosenblum, she just emailed me asking me if I was interested in participating in a arts ciencia kind of collaboration with physicists or at the Quantum Matter Institute and an artist. And to be honest, there wasn't much in the way of like a direction of, you know, like, okay, this is who you're going to be paired with, or this is kind of your expectation or any deliverables or anything like that. It was more just what would it be to put two people from very different disciplines together in a single room and see what the conversation kind of um, arrives at. And I think that that kind of flexibility in terms of collaboration between two different disciplines was what I was really interested in. And so I kind of went in there with uh, very little idea of what will happen and, and really excited about that prospect. 
So it was very new for you, Josephine, to be surrounded by physicists. Would you say that physicists and artists are different people or do you have more in common than meets the eye? I think there's more in common. I initially imagined that um, I would encounter a lot of roadblocks in terms of, you know, this is the way that research is, is, uh, is conducted and this is the way that we collect data and this is how we kind of um, approach problems and problem solving. But actually, I was kind of really blown away by the creativity and the flexibility and sort of real desire for play within the sciences. And so I think that was something that was really surprising and really, really welcome. How about you, Daniel? How did this project differ from your previous work with physicists? Well, I, I have to say, so I've done a bit of interdisciplinary work before with neuroscientists, and it was actually, it was really tough. We, we talked past each other a lot. And I, I, did, I feel like with Josephine, we've kind of formed those initial sort of language bridges really quickly. And, and it didn't feel like we were talking past each other at all, really. So I have to say it was, it was surprising. I expected it to take a lot longer before we got to anything sort of almost productive, but it felt very natural. I think we sort of have, you know, a lot in common when it comes to sort of our, our practice when it comes to research and, and have the questions we want to ask. What would you say is the biggest, what was the biggest challenge to, to not only the two of you, but the other physicists and artists in the room to this whole process, which I think I'm a big fan of what you did, by the way, but what would you say was the biggest challenge? I think initially there's a, there's a bit of inertia, right? I mean, especially with COVID, it's so easy to get locked into a cycle of, oh, we'll meet every week or two on Zoom and have a nice conversation and think about these things you know, abstractly or theoretically. But I think we really started to make a lot of progress when we actually dedicated time in the studio and started having sort of experiments with glass as a media and, and working with this professional glass blower. You know, it was overcoming that initial barrier. And once things started rolling there, we had, we had so much fun and, and so much productivity, I would say. And so that was the, the hardest barrier initially for me. How about you, Josephine? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because it was the residency was at a six month stretch and a lot of it was online because of uh, the pandemic, it really kind of tempered and slowed things down in the sense that the momentum that we were trying to gather was quite difficult. And so initially it was really just us kind of trying to spend that time getting to know each other and who we are. And we took long walks. We chatted a lot. Uh, we talked about our mutual interest in like the mountains and climbing and hiking and backpacking. And then eventually we sort of uh, found that ourselves in the face of a, a deadline, which was the symposium. <laughs> and so I think that motivated us also to kind of find like an overlapping kind of mutual interest, which was glass. And so that material fascination for the both of us propelled us into an opportunity to work with a glass blower at the Grandpa Island Vancouver Studio Glass Center. And that really sort of catalyzed our research process. I, th I Really, I would love to echo Daniel's sort of a comment that like, most of the work really just starts happening when you get into the into the studio or the lab or wherever you're starting to work, right? Well, tell me exactly what did you do with this glass blower at Granville Island? I, I just want to understand that that it was a galvanizing moment. You had this deadline, you had a symposium around the corner. What did you do uh, in Granville Island? We approached the 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 glass blower there who has just an incredible wealth of information. Shout out to Benjamin Kickert who helped us along the way. And we really just came in there kind of wondering what the sort of, how we can push the limits of this material. And then Benjamin Daniel had some great ideas on how we can kind of start that process of what pushing the material actually meant. And so once we got to that point, we started to really move into focusing on a specific 
ideology of glass, which was at the concept of lenses. And so we started building lenses out of glass and creating like prototypes that will eventually later be demonstrated in the symposium. So maybe, I mean, Daniel, you can probably speak better to sort of like the first drops that we've did and then the, the high-speed camera stuff and all the crackling and everything. Yeah, so as Josephine said, we did some some optics work making lenses. There was a sort of an interest, a mutual interest, I'd say, in optical illusions. So, you know, developing lens works and, and glass works that'll do things like obscure objects instead of magnifying them and things like that. One of the other avenues we wanted to travel down was looking at something called Prince Rupert's drops. And there are these, these wonderful things where you take molten glass and you drop it in uh, water. So we actually, I bought a fish tank from uh, this strange guy on, on Craigslist who had a big pickup truck full of fish tanks and, you know, got some lovely high-speed camera footage of, of, of basically making these Prince Rupert's drops. And they're a, a strange material because the head of these things is tempered. They're tempered, they're essentially bulletproof. And yet the tail uh, is very fragile. And if the tail breaks, the whole thing explodes quite violently. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful juxtaposition between sort of strength and, and fragility. And we were lucky enough to find some colleagues at the Spinal Cord uh, Center, the Stuart Blusson Spinal Cord Center, who had this incredible recording setup for you know something like 120,000 frames per second cameras, where you could actually watch uh, the shockwave pass through this Prince Rupert's drop, and, and you'd actually see it traveling you know six times at the speed of sound or whatever it is, and then having the bulb actually shatter. And that was a really wonderful experience, collaborating with some experimentalists outside of either of our fields, and, and you know pulling in more expertise. Well, this is pretty cool. I don't quite understand. So you you, you met this uh, strange person on Craigslist, Loss of Aquariums, and then so so. Can you tell us what is actually this? Did you say Prince Rupert's? Can you explain it a little bit more for someone who's not in the know? I mean, typically when you're working with glass, you take uh, molten glass out of out of the furnace, and you might work it on uh, a metal rod or something like that, pulling it with pliers or blowing it with a glass blowing pipe. Here we did something a little unusual. We took essentially a ladle of molten glass and just upended the ladle into a fish tank full of water. And you get this tremendous plume of steam and, you know, a crackling sound and, and, you know, boiling water. And the glass very quickly cools. And in fact, it cools it so quickly. It doesn't crack. It doesn't shatter. It doesn't yeah, shatter. Yeah, that's a, that's a big that's surprise, actually. It's, it's really yeah. unusual. I mean, if you just leave glass, molten glass in open air it'll shatter because it's it's not being cooled down gently. I mean, normally after you've made a glass blowing piece, you, you put it in an oven and very, very, very slowly bring the temperature down so that it doesn't crack with the cold air. Here, you, you accelerate that process by a factor of, you know, a thousand, you know, or 10,000. And yet somehow it actually makes a super strong, robust droplet. It's a weird paradox. Yeah. Can you control what, what uh, like, for example, the width of different parts of the droplet? I mean, is a droplet always the same shape or or is it something that you can affect the shape of the droplet? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. And uh, we did experiment a little bit with how the the total amount of glass affected things. So we tried making bigger, progressively larger and larger droplets, and we found that there seemed to be an upper limit. If you went too large, the thing would shatter in in the water. So there's something where, you know, you know, it seems like if, it, if the center is still molten while the outside has co- cooled, you're going to compromise the, the integrity of the thing. I thought when you when you were talking about different uh, making lenses and parts of the lens that would obscure something, an image, and those that, uh, other parts that would magnify, I had this impression that what, when I go to Granville Island, I see some glass 
that is on a rod and you turn it around and you can actually use things to actually deform it in, in a controlled sort of way. When you're actually taking molten glass and rapidly cooling it in water, how do you, so you, you actually really can't control where you obscure or where you magnify through the lens. Is that correct? It's, 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 it's accidental. Yes, there is a, a wonderful stochasticity to it. I will say we didn't use the Prince Rupert's drops for lenses too often, or really. We did one optical experiment with them because there's a wonderful tool called a polarimetry setup you can, you can build where you can shine polarized light through it and see where the stresses have built up in the thing. And you get these beautiful oil slick iridescent patterns throughout these Prince Rupert's drops because they have these incredible amounts of stress that they're under. Uh, and that's why they explode violently when they, when they do crack. Could you do something like this? Could you introduce dyes into the molten glass that since you're super cooling it in a very, very, in the water, that it wouldn't diffuse in the molten glass and that you could obscure, if you do use them as lenses, that you could obscure parts of, parts of the droplet, but not others. Is that something that you can, I mean, that's the artist question, Josephine. Would, would that be something that would be of interest to you? I, I think that for the Rupert's drops, just in terms of our own exper experiments, it was kind of like trying mm -hmm. to see what those th those boundaries are for the material. And then for for coloring, so the way that you color glass is you use a powdered glass, and so it's called frit. And so you essentially just wrap layers of glass on top of other glass to create that coloring effect. And so I'm not quite sure um, how that would work in terms of like a Prince Rupert shell, because then you would take the molten glass, you would have to press it onto powdered colored glass and then drop it into the <laughs> into the aquarium or water. And so I would imagine that that some parts of it would, would probably um, attach it here, but color was uh, less of a factor for myself personally in my own research. What I wanted to see was questions about how optical lenses and general were constructed throughout time to magnify and to focus and to clarify vision, right? We have eyeglasses, we have microscopes, we have telescopes and all of these sorts of screens that uh, mediate our vision in some, some way or another. But then with that visibility comes questions of hypervisibility and what it and what sort of control or censorship or violence emerges from hypervisibility, especially for BIPOC bodies. And so my sort of artistic practice was trying to refuse to be seen in some ways. And what would it be to create optical lenses that instead of doing what it, they were actually meant to do, would be doing the opposite. So how can you actually um, create a lens that for all intents and purposes looks absolutely clear, but by the shaping of it or by the configuration of it would allow the subject to disappear? it would erase them or try to hide them. And so you would create obscurity or opacity or just simply erasure or a redaction in some way to give the hypervisible the less visible and to kind of shield them and protect them in that way. And so lenses in that way, would, I really wanted to gravitate something that was already clear rather than colored. But I think colored in terms of like a next kind of iterative practice would be incredibly interesting. It's just like a whole nother realm of like glass science that's involved. I don't think we got that far within the, within the time span we have, but yeah. Well, Josephine, I really am intrigued by what you just said about, you know, issues of social justice and obscuring things that, that might be problematic or, or controversial, things like that. You know, in, in a university, we wrestle with that all the time. 
you know, and it's actually embedded within the BC Human Rights Code, right? So the, the general issue is what kinds of things should should be heard or seen on a university campus. And you have in that code part of it where, you know, I guess the foundation is that all sorts of views and ideas and individuals should be seen and heard because the diversity of thoughts really, the thinking is, will provoke the kind of dialogue and refutation of things that might be problematic that ultimately re- leads to, to a stronger conviction of what is right versus what is wrong, right? But then there's the other side of the BC Human Rights Code that has to do with the fact that some sorts of speech or some sorts of actions can actually be harmful to individuals, especially to BIPOC individuals. So I'd love to, since you've, you've been thinking about, this is, this is a fascinating project you've been working on, right? I'd love to have both of your views on what you just said, Josephine. You know, obscuring things, when is it right to do that? And when is it actually counterproductive to do so with respect to what, you're, what we ought to be doing in a university? Sure. I mean, I think it's, a, it's an incredibly complicated question, which is why I, I really love it. And I love studying it and kind of thinking about it because there's no real concrete answer. I mean, there's, you know, you can you can speak to like uh, the history of the Polaroid camera and the company where they created what was essentially these Polaroid cameras that were portable police identification devices. So they brought these to South Africa during the apartheid and then they distributed them to the police officers to then they would um, take about 100 or so photos in a single hour of citizens, black citizens, and they would push this button called the boost button, which would increase the flash within that camera by 42%, essentially exposing the citizens to this Polaroid device, which would then allow them to create what was this very controversial passbook, which allowed or didn't allow or restricted citizen movement within the country. And so you have here a very concrete instance in which exposure and visibility created control and power and censorship and essentially reproduced this violence that was happening within the country. On the opposite side, you have questions of visibility when it comes to, as you said, like the people who are just made invisible and not actually given a right to be seen and a right to be heard. And so there are sort of like numerous cases, even within like from spanning from the nuclear age of photography and documentation and how our very view of the atomic bomb was sort of didacted and in a way kind of uh, curated because the, the images that we were seeing were the images that we were fed by the military. And most of them were just kind of, you know, the mushroom cloud at a distance. And so you have this like spectacle, spectatorship, performative action of the, the nuclear, which actually doesn't demonstrate that this sheer visceral, terrible destruction that the nuclear bomb actually held within that time and, and decades after. And so questions of, I think essentially it's really questioning, first of all, how do we want to be seen? And then who is who is allowing that seeing and that visibility to happen? Who is controlling that those apparatus and those technological devices in the first place? And if we can really kind of critically examine the material and the apparatuses and technologies that uh, govern with visibility or invisibility, I think that that would help us determine the right path to go forward. Yeah, it's fascinating. I get the sense that uh, you valued this interdisciplinary exercise and what has the impact been on each of you you know f- 
in going through this this exercise? Well, I, I think for one, so I, I mean, going into this, I was a theoretical physicist. I do a lot of work on computers, writing code or, or pushing equations around on a pen and paper. And I, I think this experience is really wonderful because it, it let me, you know, get my hands dirty and, and, and get like my hands actually on the materials that I'm so often studying theoretically. I mean, I've been studying glass in my PhD for two, two years now. And it was only just recently that I actually, you know, saw the stuff being made and actually, you know, like understood some of the practical applications of it and actually, you know, got to hold, you know, some of the pieces of glass that I've made, you know, it's, it's so wonderful to actually like, you know, have some tangible weight associated with the things that I've, I've made. Uh, and I feel like I'm a much more complete physicist. There's a lot of experimental skills where you're overcoming problems and rapidly uh, iterating on things. You know, as a theorist, I don't get to practice and, and I'm a lot more confident now, you know, perhaps when I start my own lab in, you know, a decade or half a decade or something, there can be an experimental component to that lab, or I'll, I'll be a lot more confident working with experimentalists and knowing kind of what it is in the lab that's, that's going on. Um, and, and now it's, it's led, as I've, I mentioned earlier, to collaborations in the Quantum Matter Institute with some of our new professors there, Dr. Alana Hollis as a uh, is is helping me with uh, with some crackly noise that we're investigating. That's kind of a follow up to some of the work we did at at Benjamin's glassblowing studio. So I I really I just feel like it's really filled uh, filled me in and made me a much more complete physicist. Now Josephine, tell me a little bit about the impact of, of this this whole project on you and how you approach your work. I mean I think it's it's had an enormous impact because as I was doing it, I just entered the Simon Fraser University's uh, first ever inaugural. PhD in art practice program. And so I'm doing a practice-based research doctorate now. And this this residency came about just as I was starting it. And so it's really jump-started and pushed and directed my research in, in completely new and different way that I never thought would actually happen. And so I'm really excited about continuing these experiments with class and working, continuing to work with the studio and trying to find different like optical lens practices. So I'm really excited about this Art Ciencia UBC Research Excellence Cluster and just thrilled to hear from both of you and the impact of this on your lives. I've got a question for you. So, you know, we have a situation here at UBC where we have separate faculties of arts and science. And as you know, at many institutions, there's one faculty of arts and sciences. And you hear the debate. It goes back and forth. And you, there are even institutions that uh, go back and forth between having a faculty of arts and sciences, and then they split to have separate ones, and then they get lonely and they want to come back together again. So I'd love to hear from both of you. Is there a right organizational structure? I mean, taking um, into account what, what you've experienced and what you've said was the impact of this on you, does it make sense for us to have either combined or separate faculties of arts and science? What's your view? So that's a really interesting question. I mean, I feel like in some ways, you know, what you need is bottom-up organizing. You want you want to have artists and, and scientists sort of spontaneously organizing and bring themselves together, right? Uh, and obviously, an organizational change like that could help foster that, could help encourage these kinds of collaborations. But I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, after this project, I feel like there's there's too much siloing. You know, there's no need for these sort of artificial divisions between between fields. And I'd love to see some sort of process by which it would be easier for people to get a, a sample or see what's going on in, in other labs and other departments and other faculties. And I don't know if merging arts and sciences will be 
you know, the DL and all if it, that's a, the solution to the problem, but it, it might help. Certainly though, I can think of other initiatives that would maybe also accomplish that aim. I don't think it has to even end with like arts and science. I mean, why not arts and, you know, business and art, uh, law and science? And, you know, the, I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm all for the radical change that we want to see in the world. And so let's, you know, let if people want to specialize and they want to have that uh, specialization within their majors, that's great. But I think one of the things that I found challenging when I was at UBC doing my undergrad was I found it very difficult even just to take a class outside my department and even get that process alone, that difficulty makes it restrictive. And so if we can just cross the board, take any class you want, learn anything you want, try anything you want, that you know, cross-pollination will happen naturally through the course of people interacting with each other. But if those barriers of, you know, exist within that registration process itself, then it's going to be very hard for students to even know that it's worth taking that 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 effort in, right? And so I think that the, the way to do it is just kind of, you know, really make it as open as possible. And certainly it would be an argument for continuing this kind of investment through research clusters. And I'm just so thrilled uh, to have you on the Blue and Gold cast. Daniel and Josephine, thanks so much for being on the Blue and Gold cast podcast today. Daniel Korczynski is a physicist. Josephine Lee is an artist. Both are part of the Arts Ciencia, UBC Research Excellence Cluster. Thanks again. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. That does it for this episode. You can find links to our guests' work as well as previous editions of the show at blueandgoldcast.com. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can tweet me at UBC Prez. That's Prez with a Z. I'm Santa Ono. Thank you so much for listening. have been listening to a sided media production C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.